played out and are, st- are so specific and have come to pass in such exact ways, people and critics and skeptics have accused this book of having been written later than the 6th century B.C., after the events that Daniel predicted occurred in history, that there was some kind of cheating, there was some kind of forgery going on. And so when, when those kind of attacks happen against the book of Daniel, they're happening against God, and they're happening against the Word, and they're happening against Christianity. Um, the the uh, philosopher Sir Isaac Newton wrote, to reject Daniel is to reject the Christian religion. And a man named Porphyrer, kind of hard to say, (laughs) Porphyrer the heretic uh, back in the third century AD declared that the book of Daniel was a forgery, that it must have been written during the time of Antiochus, Epiphanes, and the Maccabees almost 400 years later than when Daniel lived. And he gathered quite a bit of a following on that. That's a big thing that it would have been written 400 years after the Bible says that it was. We're going to talk uh, in weeks to come about Antiochus Epiphanes and the Maccabees and, and that part of Jewish history. Um, so there's critics, there's heretics against the book. Then there's the higher critics against the book. Now the school of higher criticism was birthed in Europe in the 1700s and it gained momentum throughout the 1800s. The higher critics are, you guessed it, liberal in their theology. They reject the deity of Jesus Christ and the inspiration and inerrancy of the word of God. And so they kind of supported that view of Porphyrer, or however you say that, um, saying that the book had to have been written 400 years later because it's just too doggone specific. But we have evidence for the authenticity of this book. First, from the endorsement of Jesus himself when he spoke there on the Olivet Discourse. Um, but then also through the Septuagint. Okay, now who knows what the Septuagint is? Anybody? It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Okay, It was made in Alexandria. And it was 70 Jews who were skillful linguists sent from Jerusalem to uh, translate the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. And it was completed in the second century BC. So if the fact that the book of Daniel is contained in the Septuagint means that it could not have been written at the time suggested by Porphyrer or the higher critics. It had to have been written earlier than the second century BC. So that's just more proof of its authenticity. Here's something incredible about this book. Okay. Uh, you guys have heard of the uh, Jewish historian Josephus, right? Well, Josephus records an incident during the time of Alexander the Great that supports the early authorship. When Alexander the Great was invading the Near East, kind of in the area of Judea, um, the high priest went out of the temple or went out of the area, and showed him a copy of the book of Daniel. Okay, We're going to get there, but the, the book of Daniel foretells and prophesies of the Greeks coming in and, and taking power. And it's so specific, it actually speaks of Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great was so overwhelmed that he stopped uh, in destroying uh, one of the tabernacles there. He entered peaceably in and actually worshipped in the tabernacle. He was so overwhelmed. And so uh, just interesting history there for you guys. Um, 
what's the book of Daniel about? The book of Daniel is a book of history, which I love, contains real history, uh, and it bridges the gap between the 70 years of the Babylonian captivity, 605 to 536 BC, okay? Historical book. It contains real people, real people in history. You got Daniel, you got Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You've got King Nebuchadnezzar, which is a, a real, genuine, historic figure that even secular historians know existed. And the things written in the book, they, they know it happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. You got King Belshazzar, a real king, King Darius of the Medes and the Persians. You got King Cyrus. It contains real locations, actual Judea, actual Babylon, real events, the Babylonian captivity, the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, the reign of Belshazzar, the reign of all of these kings. Uh, it's a book of prophecy. So it's history, it's prophecy, it's listed among the, the books in our Old Testament, prophets. Uh, it's there in the prophetics. It's not in the historical books, even though there's a big chunk of history in it. There's 12 chapters in this book. So just keep up with me. Introduction here. Uh, Daniel chapter 1 through 6, you've got history, which you want to throw it back right after 2 Kings. Um, and you've got history, you've got the life of Daniel. Then chapters 7 through 12, you've got incredible chapters of prophecy. This book was written in two different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and, uh, and then finally, you've got the, uh, the subject of the book of Daniel. The subject of the book of Daniel. Number one, the number one subject of the book, it's not Daniel. It's actually God. And it's, you have some beautiful uh, visions and uh, encounters with God in this book. We're going to see God and we're going to see Jesus in this book. It's a book saturated with God. It's a book just proclaiming the sovereignty of God, that he's the king of kings and that he's the Lord of lords. He's the God who is forever and ever. So the book's about God, but the book is also about this guy named Daniel. It's a historical book. It's also a biographical book. Chapters one through six narrate the story of Daniel's life. You begin with Daniel as a young teenager, about 15 years old, and will end with him being an old man in his late 80s. He was a prime minister under King Nebuchadnezzar. He was a governor under King Darius, and he was a prophet under God. Uh, he, there's uh, three important facts about Daniel emerge as you study the book. Number one, he was a man of purpose, and we're going to study that tonight in chapter 1, verse 8. Number two, he was a man of prayer. We see that prayer marked his life in Daniel chapter 6. He's a man of prophecy in uh, chapters 7 through 12. And uh, <clears throat> these prophetic chapters containing uh, future events that had yet to occur. Um, John Wolvert, a famous commentator, you might have heard of him, John Wolvert, he often wrote with uh, Roy Zuck. He wrote this, Among the great prophetic books of Scripture, none provides a more comprehensive and chronological approach 
or excuse me, chronological prophetic view of the broad movement of history than the book of Daniel. Of the three prophetic programs revealed in scripture outlining the course of the nations, Israel, and the church, Daniel alone reveals the details of God's plan for both the nations and for Israel. Although other prophets like Jeremiah had much to say concerning the nations of Israel, Daniel brings together and interrelates these great themes of prophecy as does no other portion of scripture. For this reason, the book of Daniel is essential to the structure of prophecy and is the key to the entire Old Testament prophetic revelation. A study of this book, therefore, is not only important from the standpoint of determining the revelation of one of the great books of the Old Testament, but it is an indispensable preliminary investigation to any complete eschatological system. Basically, the book of Daniel is key in studying prophecy, and if you want to look at the end times, you look at the book of Daniel. Daniel's really the sister book to Revelation. In fact, when I was a high school pastor, on Sunday mornings, we did Revelation, and on, uh, or excuse me, Sunday mornings, we did Daniel. Uh, Wednesday nights, we did Revelation. It was just incredible how they went hand in hand. Um, the book's about faith in God. Book's about God. The book's about Daniel. The book is about faith in God. We're going to see Daniel, a man who was not shaken, even in the midst of some of the most hard pressing times in a man's life. And as Jesus said, when he preached about or spoke about John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11, you remember Jesus said, who did you come out here to see? You know, a a reed shaken by the wind, a weakling, you know, no, that's not John the Baptist. I mean, look at the dude. He's wearing like leather, you know, He, he eats bugs, you know, he's preaching a message of repentance, In the same way, who do you expect to see in Daniel? Chapter 1, 15-year-old boy. Oh, he's probably just this little cute little boy. just doesn't really know what to do with himself, you know? No way. This guy is not a reed shaken by the wind. And we're going to see that he's a guy with purpose. He's a guy with power. He's a guy of prayer. And we're going to see, you know, he's a guy that just has the favor of the Lord upon him his entire life. It's a beautiful book. Excited to get into it. Uh, That was just a quick introduction to the book. And uh, we're going to start out tonight in chapter one. You can just put your finger there. It'll be just a little bit before we get there. But the first thing we want to look about, I think I have five main points tonight. Um, I think I got to the Roman numeral V today. <laughs> and uh, number one, we want to look at the stumble, the stumble. The stumble of Judah. We're going to look at the history of the captivity of Judah. And now we can throw up that uh, slide. It's a slide that should look familiar to you guys. Uh, got tinier and tinier as we walk through the kings. And what you've got there is just the names of the kings. Uh, it starts out on the very top with Saul on the top right. And uh, Saul uh, was removed. You guys know the story. The Lord put David into into the throne after the assassination of Ishbosheth, uh, David was uh, just you know a, a man after God's own heart, an awesome king, one of the best kings we know. Um, and you'll look at the chart; you got a star next to some of the good kings. They're some of the shining kings. 
David uh, had a son named Solomon, and he just warned Solomon. You guys remember, Solomon, if you'll continue in all the statutes of the Lord, if you're obedient to the word and to the commandments, man, your kingdom will not be shaken at all. You won't even be able to, you know, you won't even be able to comprehend the wealth and the success and the glory if you'll obey. But if you disobey, this kingdom will be tore from you. And uh, for a little bit, Solomon had a, a, good, a good stint, but then he disobeyed. He started worshiping other gods. He started intermarrying with foreign women. He had, you know, hundreds of wives, hundreds of concubines, and he began to just worship other gods. And so, lo and behold, when he had a son, uh, Rehoboam kind of kicks over to green there. Um, it was when the kingdom was split between Jeroboam over on the left. Um, it's the first red name over there. Jeroboam was actually more the, the shining king at first, uh, and Rehoboam. The kingdom was split into the lower two tribes of Judah on the right and the green, and then the n- northern ten tribes of Israel. You know, each uh, nation, it became two different, you know, nations in a sense, uh, had 19 kings in their history before they were carried off into captivity. And out of these 19 kings, we're going to be focusing on the Judah ones tonight because uh, Daniel is a history of uh, Judah's captivity. So that's the right-hand side. Out of the 19 kings of Judah, most of them were wicked men. There were a few shining stars there. You've got Asa, Jehoshaphat, um, Hezekiah, and uh, Josiah, and just some, some shining guys that for a little while would turn the kingdom back over to the Lord and burn all the idols and set things back up. And then their sons would come in and their sons would just ruin everything and go back to idol worship. And so uh, corruption would occur again. And so finally, after you get down there to Josiah, you have um, Josiah has a son, Je- Jehoiakim. And uh, Jehoiakim has a son who is uh, removed from the throne, and so Josiah's other, or excuse me, Jehoiakim has three other brothers that will assume the throne in a way, and uh, and uh, just was looking at that. This is a different chart than I meant to put up there, but basically the same thing. Um, so some shining kings, and yet really just the, the reigns of the kings was marked by corruption. And because of that corruption, the Lord corrected Judah, corrected Israel as well. A hundred years before the book of Daniel was, begins, really, um, Israel was taken in captivity. Who was she taken in captivity by? You guys remember? Don't be shy. Even if you're wrong, it's okay. Assyria, right? So Assyria took over um, Israel, the northern ten tribes. And the prophets began to warn Judah, look, your sister was taken captive because of paganism and idolatry and because, you know, they began to worship the same gods that the people I vomited out of the land were worshiping. And so, you know, repent and don't worship these false gods. But they wouldn't listen to the prophets, and so they too would be vomited out of the land, as the language in Leviticus tells us, and would be led captive into Babylon because of their idolatry, number one. And that's really the primary reason, don't we think? There's actually another reason they went into captivity, and we're going to see Daniel realizes it through prayer. But it's because of Judah's disobedience to God's command about the Sabbath. 
because they disobeyed God about the Sabbath. God had commanded his people to let the land rest every seventh year, every sabbatical year, this kind of year of Jubilee. But since the day of Eli in the book of 1 Samuel, Israel had disobeyed God's command to let the land rest. So for 490 years, there was no year of rest for the land. So that means uh, that there were a total of 70 years of rest that Judah had stolen from God. Amazing that God even cares about that, that the land would rest. They disobeyed. They stole 70 years of rest. And guess how many years they're going to be in captivity? 70 years. And the Lord's going to reveal that to Daniel in quite a few weeks. We're going to get there. And so uh, there's a fulfillment of prophecy as Judah goes into captivity. Uh, Isaiah, Micah, Habakkuk, Jeremiah, they all warned the kings, repent, turn the nation back to the Lord, but the kings wouldn't have it. They just continued on in their wickedness. And so um, you read about it in 2 Chronicles 36, that uh, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them through his messengers again and again, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. It was his mercy that he sent these prophets. But they mocked God's messengers and despised his words and scoffed his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against the people and there was no remedy. And so you just came to this place in Judah of absolute and total corruption. You know, a hundred years ago, they saw their sister Israel, what the Lord did with them, dealing with them, correcting them, and they wouldn't repent. And so then the Lord deals with them and corrects them for 70 years in um, captivity. Let's go ahead and look over at 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 1. We're kind of going to look at where we left off last year. You ever have those times where you, something happens in your life or you're trying to remember and you're like, can you believe that was a year ago? It's one of those things, huh? Can't believe that was a year ago. 2 Kings 24, we're going to look at verses 1 through 4 and this verses uh, 8 through 16. And so um, if you still have your finger there in uh, Daniel, let's just read Daniel uh, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, in the, year, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, or that's also another word for Babylon, to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Okay, so we also read more about this more in depth over here in 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 1. It says, in his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of, excuse me, king of Babylon, came up and Jehoiakim became his vassal for three years. Vassal means he, he became his servant. He paid tribute to King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, he really wasn't acting like, like a king. He was more a servant. And then he turned and he rebelled against him. And the Lord sent against him raiding bands of Chaldeans, 
bands of Syrians, bands of Moabites, and bands of the people of Ammon. He sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord, which he'd spoken by his servants, the prophets. Surely at the commandment of the Lord, this came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the blood, or excuse me, because of the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also because of the innocent blood that he had shed. For he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, which the Lord would not pardon. Let's pause there, keep your finger there, but flip over a couple chapters to chapter 21, verse 2. Okay, so 2 Kings was just speaking about Manasseh's sins. Out of all of these kings, Manasseh seemed to be like the wickedest. Who was over on the other side in the red? Who was the wickedest king of Israel? Remember, married to Jezebel. Ahab, remember? Okay, so Manasseh was like the Ahab for Judah. Okay, so let's read about uh, what Manasseh was like. <clears throat> it says there in 21 two, he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abomination of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. He raised up altars for Baal and made a wooden image. Uh, as Ahab, the king of Israel, had done. And he worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which he'd said, In Jerusalem, I'll put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. So this wicked guy put pagan altars in the temple. Verse 6, also he had his son pass through the fire. That means he had child sacrifice. He actually killed his own son by burning him on, uh, I believe it was Molech. Uh, in that golden bowl in Moloch's arms. He killed his son to the, this false god. He practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft, consulted spiritists and mediums. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even set a carved image of Asherah that he had made. That's a sexual god that he made in the house of which the Lord said to David and Solomon his son, in the house in Jerusalem, uh, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I've chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not make the feet of Israel wander anymore from the land which I gave their fathers. Only if they are careful to do according to all that I've commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they paid no attention and Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than all the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. Can you imagine you know how wicked the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites were that the Lord had driven out because of their wicked idolatry that Leviticus says, I vomit them out of the land. And yet here you have Manasseh in the temple of the Lord, in the city of God. And he's just sexual immorality and child sacrifice and just, you know, just blaspheming the Lord. Jump down to verse 16 there. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood Till he'd fulfilled, or excuse me, till he'd filled Jerusalem from one end to another, besides his sin, which he'd made Judas sin, and doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay, so really, uh, this Manasseh, you know, king was the straw that broke the camel's back. You know, it was just the, the wickedness that the Lord said, Man, I've been bearing, I've been bearing, I've been sending the prophets, but this is just so heinous, it's going to be dealt with there's going to be correction. And so that brings us to um, Daniel 1.1, where we, we come to this first of three captives, uh, first of three captivities um, 
It's 605 BC. Uh, Daniel's a 15-year-old boy. Nebuchadnezzar is, uh, is the king of Babylon. He takes Jerusalem and a number of people uh, high in rank. So a number of people from Jerusalem, people high in rank. Among them are Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Uh, they're taken captive at this point. So there's this first captivity, and it's all because of Manasseh. And it, broke, it had broken at Manasseh, okay? Um, but then there's a second captivity in 597 BC. This is after verse 1 of Daniel 1. And it's there in uh, chapter 24 of 2 Kings, and we're looking at verse 8. Chapter 24 of 2 Kings, verse 8. You got Jehoiakim. He's 18 years old when he becomes king. He reigns in Jerusalem three months. He's got his mother and his daughter. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. And at the time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against Jerusalem and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came against the city as his servants were besieging it. Then Jehoiakim, king of Judah, his mother, his servants, his princes, his officers went out to the king of Babylon, the king of Babylon, in the eighth year of his reign, took him prisoner. So this is the second um, uh, invasion and the second leading away. Just three different times, just uh, Judah is taken out of Jerusalem. And this is the second time with King Jehoiakim and kind of his leaders, okay? Uh, then you have the third time in verse 13 here. He carried out from uh, there all the treasures of the house of the Lord. So in the third time that he came and invaded, he took that, the temple and all the treasures out and the treasures of the king's house. And he cut in pieces all the articles of gold, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord, as the Lord had said. Also, he carried into captivity the craftsmen, um, into captivity, all Jerusalem, all the captains, all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, all the craftsmen, the smiths, None remained except the poorest people of the land, and he carried Jehoiakim captive to Babylon. The king's mother, the king's wives, his officers, his uh, mighty men of the land, he carried into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. All the valiant men, 7,000, and craftsmen and smiths, 1,000, all who were strong and fit for war, these the king of Babylon brought captive uh, to Babylon. So that's the third and final invasion and leading out captivity. And you've got, you know, pretty much the whole city is either killed or let out, except for poor people who were left there as farmers. And so, um, so more captivities are going to happen after Daniel comes in at a young age of 15 there. You might notice in verse 19 that, uh, and I need to flip there as well, uh, 2 Kings 24 verse 19 Let's look at verse 17. Then the, the king of Babylon made Mataniah and Jeconiah's uncle king in his place and changed his name to Zedekiah. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He got his mom there. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. Um, and, uh, but you have this king here named uh, Zedekiah. And Zedekiah was... <clears throat> the next king of Judah who would reign in the place in the midst of this captivity. Now, there's something exciting about Zedekiah here that you read there. Zedekiah had a brother, okay? He's a young boy who's born about the time of Babylon, and so that means he's 
He's the brother of these three princes who all get slaughtered in the midst of this invasion. Um, And his name is mentioned in Matthew chapter 1. And his name is uh, Jeconiah. Okay. What's so special about Jeconiah, the brother, the little baby brother of Zedekiah, the son of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah? What's so special about this little baby that's born at the time of the captivity? Well, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 10 through 12, it says this. It's in the genealogy of Jesus that Hezekiah begot Manasseh. Manasseh begot Ammon, Ammon begot Josiah, Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel. Okay, big deal. So what? A lot of really hard names, right? I know my brain shuts down as well. Here's the thing. God in his sovereignty spares the line of David through a little baby that's born at the time of the captivity of Babylon, a baby, really a king named Jeconiah, who's going to have a son, who's going to have a son, who's going to have a son. And one of his sons is going to be named Zerubbabel. We're going to read about Zerubbabel later on in the book of Ezra, but Zerubbabel uh, led the first group of Jews numbered about 42,000 back into Jerusalem out of the Babylonian captivity to rebuild the temple. Okay. So the son of this little king, the son, son, son goes back to rebuild the temple. That's also the great, 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 great grandpa of Jesus. Okay. So God in his sovereignty keeps that seed alive so that his prophecies can come true about that throne of David that will have no end that Jesus would come and he would still be born. And so as Zerubbabel leads 42,000 back to rebuild the temple after this captivity, there's going to be a great grandson, 14 times great. His name's going to be Jesus and he's going to be a leader of Israel. As Matthew chapter two says, out of you, O Bethlehem, shall arise a ruler and he shall shepherd my people Israel much more so than Zerubbabel, and much more so than his great, great, great 14 times grandpa, uh, Jeconiah. So just some some cool history there, some cool uh, notings of God's sovereignty in the midst of it all. And in chapter 25, verses 1 through 26, you see the siege and the fall, that captivity of Jerusalem, that third and final one. And so as you read about this, in fact, turn to 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 12. I know we're jumping around a lot. This is back again where we're talking about the wickedness of Manasseh, all the horrible things he did. He filled the streets with blood from one end of Jerusalem to another. And just you see that the, the straw has broken the camel's back. And here's what the Lord says about Manasseh. In Judah, chapter 21, verse 12. Therefore, the Lord, or therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel Behold, I am bringing such calamity upon Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears of it, both of his ears will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab. I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish. 
wiping it and turning it upside down. So I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies that they shall become victims of plunder to all their enemies because they have done evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. And so such, such consequences are going to occur because of the sin of Manasseh that when we hear about it, if we would really know, if we would see it, our ears would tingle. And knowing the history of Jerusalem, the history of Israel, that God allowed his children to be corrected, to be chastised because of their sin, man, it, it should make our ears tingle. And to know that the Daniel we're going to be studying for about the next 13 weeks went through this, this siege against Jerusalem and he watched the house of the Lord destroyed. He watched the people of the Lord led away captive. He watched people slaughtered. He watched kings slaughtered. But he still remained unwavering in his faith. It's an incredible thing. But it's in the captivity of Judah that we see the seriousness of our sin and the consequences of our sin. You know, I was kind of like, what's another word for serious? I mean, let's get real intellectual here. How serious is our sin? And I'm like, thesaurus, you know, and it just brought about consequence was another word. And what's interesting is with Russell today, that was the word of the day. (laughs) I taught him a new word today before I even studied this as he threw a fit on the ground and I just brought him into my office and I just said, son, you're grounded from Lightning McQueen video games and from, from TV for a day, you know? And he's like, I don't understand why, you know? And I was like, uh, consequences, it's a big word. Can you say consequences? Consequences, you know, just totally. And I'm like, yeah, because you did this, this is gonna happen. There's, there's you know, there's consequences for what you've done. And uh, okay, and, and so to, to see, not very serious, a day without Lightning McQueen, you know, serious to him. But for Israel, man, there were big consequences for idolatry, for immorality, for worshiping other gods, for, you know, sacrificing children, for resisting and disobeying the holy precepts of our God. And we see on this end of history how serious the consequences were by looking at the cross. You know, when you look at the cross and you see that God became flesh and dwelt among men for 33 years until he was betrayed by his own friends and he was betrayed by his own creation and he was murdered on a tree, pierced with nails. And he died that he could pay for the sins of the world, that he could pay for the sins of Daniel and Daniel's brothers and Daniel's relatives. He could pay for the sins of the Rogers family. You know, he could pay for the sins of the Halversons and the Smiths and the Shartons. You know, how serious is our sin that God became flesh, dwelt among men and laid down his life as a ransom price for the whole world. That's how serious sin is. And may the Lord just strike in our heart that reality. May we hate sin. May we detest sin. May it be like bitter myrrh to our lips. You know, that we would vomit 
instead of sin. Understanding the dish of Judah was turned upside down and wiped clean because of the filth of her transgressions. And that the son of God was brought and he was stripped and he was whipped and he was pierced. He was slaughtered. We're no better than Judah, you guys. Not one of us. In so many different ways, we blaspheme God on a daily basis. Thank you, Lord, for your grace, huh? Thank you, God, for your grace and your mercy. And man, we just appeal tonight to the tender mercies of David, don't we? That though David was a, was a, a liar, though he was a murderer, though he was an adulterer, you know, though he really shouldn't have a star by his name up there, he appealed regularly to the tender mercies of God. He looked ahead to the cross, to the one that he wrote of in Psalm chapter 22, who would be pierced and wounded for our transgressions. He looked ahead to the cross. And because of that, there's a star by his name. And we look back to the cross for a covering, for a washing rather, of our sins. So the seriousness and the consequences of sin. We've got 20 minutes. We're going to try to bust through this chapter and uh, we've, we've recently gone through Daniel chapter 1 when we looked at the, the four virgin daughters of Philip and just how these, these you know, there's just a, a purity in that home. We went back and we looked at the purity of Daniel. And so it's, it's pretty fresh in our mind. But uh, we read here in chapters 1 and 2 of Daniel chapter 1. Hopefully you guys get all that. Hopefully it's an understanding of, okay, why is Daniel in captivity? Who, who's Judah? You know, um, if you have any questions, I'd love to maybe walk through it again with you. But uh, we read of this Nebuchadnezzar in verse 1. He's the king of Babylon. He reigned from 605 B.C. to 562 B.C. And he's a character we'll read of a lot in this book. We'll get to know him actually in a pretty intimate way as time progresses over these next uh, many weeks. Um, His name actually means, O God Nebu, preserve and defend my firstborn son. And uh, he... He liked to call himself Nebu's beloved or favorite. So he kind of called himself the favorite of God. And that's really what uh, his name means there. Jeremiah prophesied of Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4, verse 7 of Jeremiah. He prophesied that during the wickedness of Judah and the unrepentance of the king, there was a king somewhere else who was like a lion, and he was readying his army. In fact, he actually had left home to go and to come attack Judah. And so Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, was, please repent. There's another king, and he's on his way. And Jeremiah referred to Nebuchadnezzar, as the destroyer of nations. The destroyer of nations is on his way, Jeremiah said. He's recorded in history, secular history, as the greatest of all Babylonian kings and one of the mightiest monarchs of all time. He's the king of Babylon, which is the capital city of the Babylonian empire. It's about 50 miles south of modern-day Baghdad in Iraq. And um, Babylon was just this enormous, enormous city, uh, five times the size of uh, London. It had over 200 square miles. It was an enormous city, had all sorts of man-made splendors. 
Um, they had walls around the outside that were 300 feet high, and they would do chariot races with four chariots that would race side by side around the walls of Babylon, this city that was 200 miles in circumference. They had these bronze gates on the outer wall that were a quarter mile um, from the inner wall of the inner of the wall to the outer of the wall. There were colossal towers and gates, and the river Euphrates ran right through the middle of it. It really was an incredible city. In fact, Saddam Hussein considered himself kind of like the reincarnated Nebuchadnezzar, and his goal in life was to rebuild Babylon. You might know that. He actually had the bricks being laid for Babylon, and on the bricks were stamped Nebuchadnezzar's image. Um, He wanted to rebuild Babylon over there in Iraq. That didn't work out too well for him. Um, And uh, the city was a pagan city, had 200 altars in the open streets with 153 temples, a couple of these temples, three miles in circumference. So massive, massive pagan idol worship. And the Lord is using these guys to chastise his people. There's a, a temple of Murduk in there. It was the name of a god, and it was inside that temple. There was a 40-foot-long tablet of solid gold weighing 50,000 pounds, and it's been discovered by archaeologists. So there was some cash flow uh, in the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon are one of the uh, ancient wonders of the world, and, ba- and Nebuchadnezzar built these hanging gardens of Babylon. And it was the most important cultural center of ancient Babylon. So you've got Nebuchadnezzar, you've got Babylon, you've got, in verse 3, this king, he carried away, in verse 2, he carried all the treasures from the temple into the house of his God. And then in verse 3, the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles. And... uh, These were young men. So uh, the king has his master of the eunuchs uh, pick out some choice young men to become eunuchs as well. Speaking of a a castrated minister of the state, these young men were castrated so that they would just be totally and 100% focused on government affairs and, and not be having affairs with any women whatsoever, let alone really the main reason any of those prominent women that were ruling as well. So um, deal with any drama right off the bat by making these men uh, eunuchs. So Ashpenaz, the ruler of the eunuchs, um, brings in these these men. And who was brought in? You've got the children of Israel brought in there in verse 3. You've got some of the king's descendants brought in to be eunuchs. Now, isn't that interesting? King's descendants... And remember, there was a young baby that was actually a son of a king whose name was Jeconiah. And perhaps maybe he was brought in as, as one of these men. It doesn't say for certain that they all were made eunuchs. But um, Flavius Josephus records that Daniel and his three friends were related to King Zedekiah. So that would make them some of these uh, king's descendants. And then also it says they brought in some of the nobles. Um, So bring in some of these young men to make them eunuchs. It says, verse 4, we have a description of these young guys. Young men in whom there's no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, quick to understand, had the ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. So they were young men 
that uh, were really dreamy guys. You know, they were a catch for all the young ladies out there. And, uh, but they were forced into this um, business of serving the king. And at a young age, they began a three-year process of indoctrinating them to, uh, to serve uh, the king of, of Babylon. Um, so they're, they're just these good-looking guys. They're just like the, the, the cream of the crop, you know, smart guys, wise, wise guys, you know, um, just, you know, awesome, awesome young guys um, of good stock, as Paul might say in Philippians chapter 3. And, uh, and so that's the beginning of point number one tonight, or that's the end of point number one tonight. You've got the stumble, the stumble or the fall of Judah. Okay. So Judah has been taken over by Babylon. It was violent. It was in a three different sieges, you know, and, and now they take away these young choice men and, and they're imprisoned and they're indoctrinated. That's the stumble. Okay. Uh, we move on to verse four. We'll see the stand. Okay. So the stumble and then the stand. And it's here in chapter one, beginning at verse four through verse 16, that we see integrity under pressure, integrity under pressure. In verse five, these dreamy young guys were appointed by the king, a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and three years of training for them so that at the end of that time, they might serve before the king. So they're given these primo rations, king's delicacies. What's the first thing that comes to your mind? Chocolate, you know, I don't, the head of a pig on a platter. I don't know, a goblet of something cool and refreshing, you know, just like, I mean, some, some good stuff. I think of those little things that have ice cream in them, but they're a pastry puff with ice cream in the middle. I don't know. It seems to me that Nebuchadnezzar, I want one right now. That's why I'm thinking of that. Um, seems to me that Nebuchadnezzar uh, would have had one of those things. It says that they drank the wine that the king drank. Could you imagine? I mean, how many of us have a, a bottle of wine in our house that uh, Barack uh, Obama is, is you know, having at the White House right now? Probably not many of us. Um, interesting, today I looked up the most expensive bottle of wine and it was sold at an auction recently in Hong Kong. The bottle originally was thought to be worth about $8,000. They didn't think it'd go for much, but it sold for $233,972 by an anonymous buyer. And so uh, that's the kind of wine that Daniel would, would have been given. And, and all of these boys, this, this $300,000 bottle of wine. How big was this daily provisions that were given? We don't really know Nebuchadnezzar's, but we actually have record of Cyrus's dinner table. And he's the king of Persia. We'll get to him later on in the book. But we have a record of what his dinner table consisted of. And they're probably pretty similar. But listen to this. Um, And Cyrus's reign was actually inferior to Nebuchadnezzar. So it was probably bigger than this. This is on the dinner table. Get ready. 400 sheep. Did you hear that? 400 sheep on the dinner table. No, you didn't hear that. 400 sheep, okay? Uh, 300 lambs, as if there's a difference. 100 oxen, 30 deer, 400 geese, 100 young geese, 300 pigeon, 600 small fowls, 3,750 gallons of wine, 75 gallons of new milk, 
and 75 gallons of old milk, (laughs) sour milk, 22,000 loaves of bread. Okay, so that's just a one-day banquet at King Cyrus of Persia. So Nebuchadnezzar, a greater king, um, these guys had, you know, they had some good grub before him. That's all I'm saying. Um, But their daily provision of food was, you know, to drink what the king drank, eat what the king ate, to really showcase to these young men the splendor of the king of Babylon and to just say, look, guys, let's just be buddies. Okay, don't rebel against me. Just conform. Okay, become a Babylonian. Don't even think about rebelling. And they got three years training, you know, um, a lot to learn about Babylon, but really they just wanted to brainwash and indoctrinate these young men. The king had his eyes on them. He wanted them for himself. In verses six and seven, we read of among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them, the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So we're going to see in this book that these four guys, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, they are incredible young men of integrity, about 15 years old at this time. Uh, and, And you can actually attribute some of this character quality to their parents just by looking at what they were named. Daniel's name meant God is judge. God is judge. And yet the prince of the eunuchs turned his name to Belteshazzar, which means Baal protects. You got Hananiah. His name means the Lord is gracious. You can imagine his mom giving him that name. God is gracious. And then uh, Ashpenaz gave him the name Shadrach, which means commander of Murdoch, you know, commander of this false God. And then Mishael, none are like our God. He's given the name Meshach which means command of Murduk. Azariah, the Lord is my help, has his name changed to Abednego, a servant of Nego, a false god. So Babylon would try to to change their names, hopefully to change them, but we're going to see it didn't work. It didn't work. These guys had character. These guys had integrity. These guys were quality. Even in the midst when all the pressures of the world were, were just forced upon them and all the temptations and all of the threats of this world placed on these guys. In verse eight, but Daniel, you might underline that, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. So, you know, Daniel was, was young and single. He'd probably watched his parents get slaughtered in the siege. You know, he's led away captive, and yet he's not angry with the Lord. He remembers who the Lord is. He remembers the commands and the statutes of the Lord, and he holds his ground here. Uh, and he purposes in his heart that he's not going to defile himself with, with this banqueting table from the king. I love the word purpose. It's actually the Hebrew word seem, S-E-E-M is the way we spell it. Um, and it means to determine or to resolve, to make firm. He had determined and resolved in his heart, it says. You know, the heart is, you know, widely the term used for the inner feelings, the will, and even the intellect. It, it really speaks of our center of ourself that, that we care about. And he purposed and resolved in his inner man that he wouldn't defile he wouldn't pollute. He wouldn't stain himself. 
As Proverbs says, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring all the issues of life. Daniel listened to that word from Solomon, and he kept his heart. He purposed in his heart. And I like that. He seemed in his heart. You might say it seems that he's determined to stay true to the Lord, you know, as people would would watch his life. But why did Daniel make a big deal about this, like, feast, you know, and all the wine and good grub, I mean, venison, you know, and all that. Why why would he make a big deal about it? Is it really an issue? Probably a few things here. Number one, a lot of the stuff that was eaten, it was unclean. And he just knew, man, the Lord would not have me eat that. Um, A lot of it, the wine, he just knew he shouldn't drink the wine. A lot of it probably offered to idols. The, The primo of the meat would be offered to idols. And then it finds its way to his platter, and he just, man, I just can't eat this. My conscience won't allow me to eat this, to sin against my God. I'm still a Jew. I'm still a child of God, even though I'm hundreds of miles away um, in Babylon. But he was a man of conviction. You got to love that about him, don't you? It's hard to find, isn't it? Uh, I was at dinner with, uh, or uh, lunch with Ryan, who led worship here the other day on Sunday. And it was just cool after a couple hours of conversation uh, led into one of his convictions on on uh, uh, liberty that we have in the church, and it was just cool the way that he put it. That he's just he's convicted a certain way about some of the liberties that we have, and I just listened to him talk about it. At the point, he didn't know where I stood on it, and I just was so blessed hearing him talk about the conviction of the Holy Spirit on his life. He wasn't being legalistic. He wasn't condemning anybody else. He just said, "Man, this is just what the Lord has like." convicted me on and I just cannot go against it. And I was just refreshed by a man with conviction. And, uh, and so he had this conviction, which is a strong persuasion or belief. I've quoted this before. It's what Sandy Adams says about conviction. He says this conviction is when I put my heart into my holiness. Have You ever done that? Put your heart into your holiness It's determination added to desire. It's commitment with a strong resolve or decision. It's commitment added to the agreement that it's right. Conviction is a moral with some muscle. It's a virtue that's been working out and lifting weights. Conviction is credibility to virtue. So not only did Daniel have conviction, he had moral with some muscle, but he was a virtuous guy. He's what the New Testament would call virtuous. He had moral excellence. And when you have moral excellence and you have conviction, which is a strong persuasion, man, you're really unstoppable in this world for the Lord. If you walk in the power of the Holy Spirit to, to, you know, be holy because Jesus is holy, I'm going to walk in holiness because I love Jesus. And if you walk in virtue and in conviction, the circumstances around you don't matter. Okay? The personalities that are associated with wherever you're at, they're no concern to you. And the consequences that come from you taking a stand carry no weight at all. Here Daniel is. He's a slave. He's probably a eunuch or going to be made a eunuch, you know. He could be slaughtered. He's watched people all around him get slaughtered. Yet the circumstances, they don't phase him. 
I don't care that I'm a slave. I'm a child of God. I don't care that the king has his eye on me. Nebuchadnezzar, old Nebi himself, he knows me and he's got his eye on me and he wants me. I don't care. I don't care what personality is involved. And I don't care the consequences of walking in holiness and walking in conviction. None of that matters. I'm virtuous. I'm a man of conviction. Daniel had elevated moral excellence to supremacy. The virtue was all that mattered in his life. Representing Yahweh in Babylon was all he cared about. He wanted to be a light. He wanted to live missionally in the midst of that dark world. You know, he had more than an agreement about the truth. A lot of us, we have an agreement. Yeah, this is, this is true. This is right. I agree with that. But I'm not going to really apply that. I'm not going to walk in that. With his conviction and his virtue, it was transferred from merely an agreement with the truth to a commitment that was worth keeping, even if it cost him his life. He didn't care. Kill me. Slay me now. I'll trust the Lord. I'll follow the Lord. Daniel was a man of conviction. He was a man of virtue. Samson didn't really walk in the conviction, even though he was a Nazarite. He didn't really walk in virtue. You've got David, who at at times did, and at times he fell, reminding us that every day we got to walk in the spirit. You got the Proverbs 7 man who's just walking down the street and the, and the writer of Proverbs says, man, I perceived a, a man and he's walking along and, and there's a seductress on the side of the road and, oh no, they caught eyes, you know, and oh no, she's beckoning him and oh no, she's telling him about his, her perfumed linens and Egyptian linens and all that. Oh no, he's going in and he's going in as an ox led to the slaughter. And words are used over the Proverbs 7 man who didn't walk in virtue and didn't walk in conviction. And the words that are used for the Proverbs 7 man are this, struck down. Cast down, fall down, arrow striking your liver. These are all words that are used of the Proverbs 7 man who goes in and and falls into sin. Of a man that didn't walk in virtue, that didn't walk in conviction. Of a guy that compromised. It's been said that compromise is really just postponing your demise. It's paying the cannibals to eat you last. (laughs) You know, but Daniel didn't compromise. You know, I love military history and I was reading a book called Marine Sniper and it's about uh, Carlos Hathcock. He's a sniper in Vietnam and he's famous now for having the most confirmed sniper kills in Vietnam. He had 93 kills. He actually was the inventor of the 50 caliber sniper rifle. He just put a scope on the top of a machine gun and just looked through and and hit this machine gun. And he got this longest confirmed kill of two miles with the scope on a machine gun. Just a a really, you know, incredible um, soldier. And uh, and, uh, I was reading one day as I was teaching on Daniel chapter one, I actually read this chapter and it said that... uh, on one of his missions that he got, he was to assassinate a top Viet Cong general who was isolated in a base located in the middle of a flat valley. And so for Carlos Hathcock to get this shot, he had to, forgive me as I read to try to remember it all, he had to dress up in his ghillie suit, they call it, crawl on his belly for miles. 
using every contour of the land as cover, never so much as lifting his head, lest the enemy spot him on this flat ground. He went days crawling across this valley without food. He went to the bathroom in his ghillie suit, laying down, lest he be spotted. He crawled straight into fire ant hills, got stung by wasps until he was with a few hours of a perfect shooting distance. Just when he got to where he could make the shot, just when he was almost there, he came face to face with a poisonous cobra. And it saw him and it went into striking position with its fan up in the air. And just as it was about to strike him, he just said, don't compromise. Don't compromise. Don't compromise. You've come this far. Don't compromise. And the cobra calmed down and slithered away. He took the shot, jumped up and ran back out into the woods. And I read that the day I was um, preparing this Daniel chapter one. I was just like, man, Daniel, don't compromise. You know, Hebrews tells us that Jesus is our faithful high priest. He's our sympathetic high priest. He's been tempted in every way that we have been, and yet he didn't sin. He ever lives to make intercession for us. Do you know he's praying for you right now? You can hear him beckoning, don't compromise. Don't compromise. Man, you're almost there. You're almost there. The trials are coming. The temptations to get up and run, they're coming. Don't compromise. It's worth it. Stay faithful. Daniel with integrity. Integrity marked his life. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we're going to see in this book, integrity marks their life as well. They're not going to compromise. They're going to stand firm for Yahweh. We've seen the stumble We've seen, uh, what did I title it? Sorry, it was a while ago. (laughs) Short-term memory loss. You got it too? Thank you. The stand, the stumble, the stand, and the strength. Because we're not teaching tonight. We're not teaching that morality is the end of it all. Okay? We can't do it on our own. We know that because of the Old Testament. You know, they tried to keep the law. They couldn't do it. And Jesus had to come, Romans 8 tells us, Because we were weak in the flesh, we couldn't keep the law. So he had to come and fulfill the law for us that if we would believe in him, it would be just as if we had fulfilled the law because of Jesus. We couldn't do it on our own. And you know what? Daniel didn't do it on his own. It wasn't just about purposing in his heart. It wasn't he resolved to do it and that's where the the power came from. It wasn't by white knuckling it. But it was by what Zacharias says in chapter four, verse six, that it's not by might. It's not by power. It's by the spirit. You see, we respond to the word of God by saying, Lord Jesus, I purpose in my heart not to defile myself. But Lord Jesus, I appeal to you, the high priest, to pray for me right now. I appeal to the Holy Spirit to empower me to get through this temptation and to look for the open doors, the ways of escape that Peter talks about. Lord, I need you. I can't do it. You can In fact, I'm going to ask my high priest to intercede for me right now. Not after I sin. Oh, I did it again. Lord, would you pray for me? Let's pray right now. Lord, I wake up this morning. I know there's temptations out there. I know that the king's got his delicacies out there and he just wants me to nibble on it. He wants me to compromise. He wants me to stain myself. But Lord, 
You rose from the dead. The same spirit that rose you from the dead is in me. And Lord, would you empower me? And Lord Jesus, would you pray for me right now that I would have victory today? That's basically what was going on in Daniel's life. He knew who his God was. He knew his God was judged, just as his name says. And in Daniel chapter 6, verse 3, we see that he had an excellent spirit within him. If you're a Christian today, you have that same excellent spirit in you. And so appeal to that excellent spirit to help you stay true to the convictions that the Holy Spirit's placed on your life. Walk in victory. Rejoice. When you stumble, appeal to his mercy. We walk in the spirit and we won't fulfill the lusts of the flesh, Galatians tells us. Galatians 3.3 also says, hey, are you so foolish having begun in the spirit? Are you going to be made perfect by the works of the flesh? That's foolishness. We began in the spirit the day we believed. And so today, we don't try to white knuckle it. We again, we walk in the spirit. We appeal to the spirit. We cry out for the spirit. We trust and we rest in the spirit. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. We're almost done. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. I was just reading this verse today, and it kind of fit in with where the Lord was moving my heart. But 2 Peter 1, 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the name or in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. His power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. It's not us. Through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, is that word, moral excellence. We've been called by glory and moral excellence by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these, you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. You guys, it's through being born again. It's through the power of the Holy Spirit that we're partakers of this new nature. The same nature Daniel had, that same nature that gives us escape through uh, escape from lust. It's the power of the spirit, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brother kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. Something practical for us is that we would add to our faith tonight, our faith that saved us. Well, Lord, tonight, add virtue. Add moral excellence. Purpose in my heart, Lord, that, that when that show comes on, I'm going to shut it off immediately. I'm not going to dilly-dally. It's off. You know? Or when I'm in that situation with that female coworker and there seems to be a little bit of flirting going on. Man, I've already purposed in my heart. I'm not even going to be alone with her ever in a room. Purpose in my heart. It's not going to happen. Lord Jesus, today as I wake up, Lord, you give me the power. To, to fulfill that purpose. Instead of waiting till you get in the midst of the temptation and, oh, it's just, oh, I don't really know what I'm going to do. Man, a purpose three months ago that it wasn't going to happen. I've been crying out for the Lord to help me in that ever since. But add to your faith virtue. Verse eight, back there in Daniel, kind of finish up the chapter. 
So Daniel purposed in his heart that he wouldn't defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. You know, just the boldness of him and that he would talk to this guy who would just as soon kill him than grant his request. But notice verse 9. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. Whenever there's a verse 8 that starts with, but Daniel, there's always a verse 9 that says, now God. Man, when we rely to, to seek the Lord, when we cry out to seek the things of the Lord and to walk in holiness, the Lord is with us. The Lord is working behind the scenes. The Lord is working out favor with our coworkers and our boss and that person. He, he's working it out. Even in Joseph's case, God was sovereignly working it out. God had brought him into the favor and the goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my Lord, the King, Nebuchadnezzar, who's appointed you food and drink. Why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the King. So Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearances be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portions of the king delicacies as you see fit. So deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter and he tested them for 10 days. Remember how when Daniel was chosen to be one of these eunuchs, it says that one of the qualities about these guys, aside from stunning good looks, was wisdom. As a 15-year-old, he had wisdom. And uh, you just see that right here. I mean, just lickety split. Just a word of wisdom from the Lord. Says, hey, test us. 10 days. 10 days. Boom, right away. I'm setting a date. You examine us in 10 days. Let's see how it looks. God had given him that word of wisdom, and it was peaceable to the chief of the eunuchs and and to his staff. And so verse 14, so uh, in verse 15, at the end of 10 days, their features appeared fatter, better in flesh than all the young men who ate the portions of the king's delicacies. And so here we have the splendor the splendor in Daniel. And and that word splendor speaks of a quality that outshines the usual. Daniel was a man with an excellent spirit in him, as well as his three friends. And he was a man that purposed in his heart not to defile himself. He was a man that relied on the spirit to, to help him be successful in that. And we see that there was splendor, there was favor, there was reward. And it turns out victory for them in this 10 day challenge. It says they were all better. They were fatter in flesh. Apparently that's what they were going for. I'm not going for fatter in the flesh, going the opposite direction. And, uh, and they were given vegetables to eat. They became vegetarians there. And these, as for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. As my grandpa Khan used to say, he, they were sharp as a tack, you know, and uh, these guys were sharp. I mean, they were sharp before, but it seems like God gave them extra favor, extra gifting, extra knowledge and skill and wisdom. We're going to see that throughout this book. And then Daniel's given a special gift. Uh, He had understanding in all visions and dreams, this gift of interpretation. And we're going to see that just as as incredible in his life throughout this book. Even next week, we'll see that in chapter 2. Now, at the end of the days, when the king had set said that they should be brought in. The chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king interviewed them. And among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they served before the king. Talk about an interview, huh? An interview before a king that could just kill you. 
if he wasn't satisfied with you, but God had given them favor. And you know, isn't it neat that when we take the time to set aside the delicacies of this world and to seek after the Lord, don't we appear better and fatter in flesh spiritually? At the discipleship hub group this morning, Kevin kind of opened up the meeting with that and read out of Matthew chapter 6 that, you know, the, the, the eye is the lamp of the body. And when we're looking at light, you know, there's light in us. But if we're meditating on things that are dark, there's darkness and there's just, there's struggling and all of that. And man, how I just encourage you guys to take a season. Maybe it's 10 days. Maybe it's the 10-day challenge like Daniel. And maybe it's shut off the TV and shut off the Facebook and do a fast of some kind. Maybe it's food. Maybe it's actual delicacies, whatever. Do a fast and seek the Lord and just watch. Watch that fatness of spiritual flesh and that just better looking walk with the Lord. Maybe the Lord would just be speaking to you tonight to do that. Um, but there was, a, there was a splendor in these guys, and they were given the job to serve before the king. What an honor. In verse 20, and in all manners of wisdom and understanding, matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in the realm. Isn't that awesome? Ten times better. As many days as you... We're tested, you're that many times better than all the other pagan uh, kind of witch doctors of the day. And Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. That speaks of when he was in his 80s. So age 15 through age about 85, we're going to get to walk with Daniel. And uh, go ahead and have Ken coming up. We'll close with one song, Ken, if you could do that with us. And go ahead and set your things aside. Let's stand.